read from Genesis chapter 3 and also Romans chapter 5. I'll just read two verses. The sermon is still primarily from just one verse, verse 6, but I'll read both verse 6 and verse 7. Genesis chapter 3. This is the word of God. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened. They knew that they were naked. They sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And then look at Romans chapter 5 with me. I'll actually read about half of the chapter. I'll begin at verse 12. Read to the end of the chapter. I think you'll know quite easily why it's relevant to preaching from Genesis 3, verse 6. Romans 5, verse 12. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sin. Sin indeed was in the world before the law was given. Sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. The free gift was not like the trespass, for if many died through one man's trespass, Much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin. The judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. For if, because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. Now the law came in to increase the trespass. Where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.
Let's ask the Lord's blessing on his word and its preaching. We are a wealthy people indeed, O Lord, to be seated here before your testimonies. We will meditate on them now by your grace with awe. Delight our hearts and sober them as well by all that you would teach us, Holy Spirit, from your word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. John Milton in Paradise Lost is describing the scene where Eve is offering to Adam the forbidden fruit. She's just told Adam what she's done, where this fruit is from. So this is Milton's description of what happens next. Adam, soon as he heard the fatal trespass done by Eve, amazed, astonished stood and blank, while horror, chill, ran through his veins and all his joints relaxed. Speechless he stood and pale, till thus at length, first to himself, he inward silence broke. O fairest of creation, last and best of all God's works, Creature in whom excelled whatever can to sight or thought be formed, holy, divine, good, amiable, or sweet. How art thou lost? Milton goes on to describe this stricken Adam. He realizes that he now, too, has a decision to make. Will he shun his wife who's fallen from innocence and so lose her forever? Will he join her in her disobedience against God and die with her? Milton is exploring with what I've called an edifying imagination. What our text again this morning, presents to us, which is the fall of man in two stages. You know this well. First, Eve takes the forbidden fruit under the deceiving influence of the serpent. She eats. Then Adam takes the fruit from the hand of his wife. Yet he knowing full well what it is. He eats. Last time, we consider the lessons to be learned from the deception of Eve. And today, we'll go on to consider the lessons to be learned from the delinquency of Adam. The best way I've devised to divide our time is to look first at three features of the story as they focus on Adam and his eating the forbidden fruit. And then we're going to draw three lessons or morals of the story, if you will, uh, from Adam, his eating. 
the forbidden fruit. So three features, and the first thing we should probably take up is uh, the question of Adam's participation in all that we have been seeing in Genesis chapter 3 to this point. You need to know that there's a range of respectable opinion about exactly what was Adam's participation in the things that we've seen since the beginning of the chapter. So verses 1 through 5, there's a conversation between the serpent and the woman. Then in verse 6, there's a description of Eve's thinking as she looks on the fruit there on the forbidden tree. And then there's those fateful words in verse 6, she took of its fruit and ate. And there's difference of opinion about what Adam's involvement in all this thus far is because we're just told virtually nothing about it. We have in verse 6 these words, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Wait, Adam was with her? In what sense was he with her? Was Adam standing beside Eve the whole time she's having a conversation with the serpent? Was he standing there as she gazed at the fruit, considering whether or not to eat of it? Was he standing there when she took and ate, so that when she gave it to him, all she had to do was say, here. Is that what we're to understand? Well, there are two broad schools of thought on this. As I have found in considering this passage recently. So... Uh, in my shelf of ancient and modern commentators, all good people, uh, they tend to divide in terms of timetable. So more recent interpreters tend to think Adam was there at Eve's side the whole time. And they look at the words in verse 6 with her as settling the question. They would say that this can only mean that he was present for the whole thing. They take this expression in its most literal sense. Adam is with Eve there at her side. So if you think about it, in this view, Adam hears everything that Satan says to his wife. Adam hears it, but he's not deceived by it. Paul in 1 Timothy 2 has made very clear Adam was not deceived. So Adam watches while his wife takes and eats the forbidden fruit, and then he joins her in her sin only after she has sinned and has invited him to do so. Now, if that's in fact what happened, this reconstruction of the crime scene, if you will, it's rather incriminating for both Adam and Eve. You perhaps can see that. Casts a certain light, first of all, on Eve. She's willing to act unilaterally apart from Adam's input, even though he's standing right there. That's even more shocking to us. She's carrying on a conversation which amounts to mutiny in the presence of her husband. She's considering eating without any consultation of the one who stands right beside her, and she does so and turns directly to him. It's all very brazen on Eve's part. Adam's failure, if he's standing beside her all the way through, is even more despicable. He's not deceived by the serpent, but... He makes no protest at what the serpent is saying. He's aware of what Eve is contemplating. He does nothing to prevent her. He strikes me as an absolute wallflower, just waiting to see what's going to happen. So it's rather incriminating if you understand Adam to be with his wife in the most literal sense. 
older interpreters I've found tend to see the account as actually depicting the serpent speaking privately to Eve, with Adam only sought out by Eve after she's done the deed. So they point out that when you open uh, chapter 3 and hear the serpent saying to the woman, did God actually say, you're right to assume that he's not saying it to the man and the woman, he's speaking just there to the woman, in other words, privately, they're inclined to think that that's actually the cunning intention of the serpent all along in wanting to speak to the woman, he's exploiting her vulnerabilities this way, and that's why she falls so decisively under his influence, because she's alone with him. And this view tends to think of Eve sharing the fruit with Adam, still under the deception. This is good. This is good. So in this view, verse 6 is not speaking literally that Adam is at Eve's side. Adam and Eve were, after all, the sole humans on the planet, and they are with each other there in the garden. And that seems to be the way that Adam will speak later in verse 12 when he says to God, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree and I ate. Adam is clearly not saying there, whom you gave to be at my side. Uh, at every moment, he's speaking of with him in the garden. Well, in this interpretation, Adam and Eve have simpler uh, sins. Eve comes under the spell of Satan. And there, in the moment, her desire for the fruit masters her desire to be obedient. And then Eve, or sorry, Adam is presented with a wife who has eaten of the forbidden fruit. He knows well what she's done. And for reasons that the writer actually doesn't tell us, he accepts her offer to join her. Well, uh, I'm not sure that I will be able to settle this friendly dispute among very good commentaries, the older view or the newer view. Early in my ministry, I took the newer view as a whole, that Adam and Eve were standing side by side in the whole time, but uh, my studies of late have shifted me back towards the old view, seeing Eve alone and then coming to Adam with the fruit she's already taken. Uh, here's, I offer to you, uh, what has been compelling to me. If you believe that Adam and Eve sinned, was their eating the forbidden fruit? Of course, a sin that originates in their heart, but it's directed at the fruit, and it's the eating of the forbidden fruit that's their sin, then the view that they're together the whole time tends to impute to them sins prior to that sin. See, Eve has a sin of ignoring her husband's wisdom and leadership as he stands right there. Adam has the sin of doing nothing about what's happening, the sin before the sin. We'll come back to the role reversal that is taking place, but I think the role reversal is more subtle uh, that some recent commentators would propose. We'll have both of those views, though, in mind as we continue. This is all under the heading Adam's participation. Let's look at a second thing about our text, and that's Adam's delinquency. And whatever approach you take, whatever understanding you have about 
the crime scene and uh, the participants of Adam and Eve. In terms of what Adam didn't do, in terms of what he does do, his delinquency is extreme in either case. What should Adam have done when Eve presented to him the fruit? Well, if he was there in the presence of the serpent from the beginning, even before she came to that point, he should have, he should have killed the serpent. Should have defended God's honor against Satan's slander. He should have put himself bodily between Eve and the fruit she was drawn to. But if he's simply presented with the fruit after the fact, the fait accompli, it's much simpler. But it's profoundly the case he should have refused to eat for himself. Uh, He should have said to his beloved wife what Jesus said to his beloved disciple. Matthew 16, Jesus said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me. Now, admittedly, our imagination can run long and far in this question, what if he had done the right thing? What if only Eve had fallen there in the garden? Would God have judged Eve and created another woman? Adam? Would God have commenced a plan of redemption for one? One sinner? Would Adam have become a mediator, an intercessor on behalf of his wife? Would he have even offered to die? in her place, to gain her redemption as his bride, as the second Adam would one day do. An especially attractive thought, but of course we have no way, do we, of answering the question. But we do have no difficulty saying, Adam should obey God, even at the cost of losing his wife. Words come to my mind from Luke chapter 18, our Lord says, Truly I say to you, there's no one who's left house or a wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God who will not receive many times more in this time and in the age to come eternal life. That's what Adam should have done. What did Adam do instead when Eve presented to him the fruit? Well, this is where his delinquency is truly heinous, Adam knowingly and intentionally transgressed the law of God. He had heard with his own ears the word of God. You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day you eat of it, you shall surely die. Adam knows what he's been commanded. He knows what he's being offered. Adam decides, I will eat of the forbidden fruit. Adam's sin, you might say, is as brazen as Satan's temptation. And what's interesting is we're left to speculate why he did it. Our our text doesn't answer for us. It simply says he took from his wife's hand and ate Milton suggests that it was out of love for his wife. 
kind of suicide pact. He'll die with her, the one that's one with him. Others would suggest he's envious of Eve. Eve has experienced something or about to experience something that he hasn't had yet. It's envy. Others simply say he has the same ambition of the one who tempted Eve. He wants to be like God. He knows the name of the tree. Tree of the knowledge of good and evil. We're not told the reason. I'll be coming back to suggest many times sin doesn't need a reason. Adam may have eaten simply because he was forbidden. We'll come back to that. Adam's participation, we looked at his delinquency. Let's look thirdly at his responsibility as we find it in the scriptures. There is this role reversal that takes place between Adam and Eve. She is leading, and he is following. I told you last week that lies behind Paul's comments in 1 Timothy chapter 2. One has put it, hers is a sin of initiation, his is a sin of acquiescence. I do think it's more subtle than some would make it out to be. I don't see us fairly saying Eve's the headstrong woman in this relationship trying to direct the family. I don't see it fair to Adam to say he's the 'er ne'er-do-well, head of his household, looking for a chance to get out of his responsibilities. These are perfect human beings, innocent, magnificent in every way. Brothers and sisters, consider the ingenuity of Satan. His great purpose is to incite them to rebel against God. But if along the way he can distort their relationship with each other, oh, so much the better. Here's the point for today, talking about Adam's responsibility. Friends and sisters, the text in Genesis 3 thus far is all about Eve's initiative. Minor note, Adam's acquiescence. But you know the spotlight will be on Adam for the rest of history. It will be Adam who's held up as the one responsible for what happens in the garden. That's why I read to you from Romans chapter 5 a moment ago. And I trust that you heard many references to And you didn't hear a single reference to Eve. Verse 12 of Romans 5, sin came into the world through one man and death through sin. And so death spread to all men because all sin. He goes on in a drumbeat kind of emphasis talking about the transgression of Adam. Verse 14, one man's trespass. Verse 15, one man's sin. Verse 16, one man's trespass. Again, verse 17, one Man's disobedience, verse 19. Now, Paul is unpacking something that excuse me, is not unpacked in Romans chapter 3. He's unpacking this doctrine of Adam's headship, covenantally, over all mankind. Adam is the responsible 
leader, not just of his life, but of all mankind, all of his descendants. And God is going to deal with all of Adam's posterity in terms of what Adam does, just here in the garden, being tested. That's why Paul puts the responsibility for the entrance of sin into the human race at Adam's feet, not Eve. I think that's actually clear in the text as we'll go forward in Genesis chapter 3. We'll see in verse 9 that when our first parents are hiding from the Lord, we're told God calls out to the man and said to him, where are you? The Hebrew is in the masculine singer. Where are you, Adam? God continues talking with Adam. Have you, masculine singer, eaten of the tree which I commanded you not to eat? God is dealing first and foremost with Adam. So this is really our first encounter with something that will run throughout the scriptures, corporate or covenantal responsibility, tells us as much as Eve has her own free will and moral agency and her own relationship with God and her own responsibility for her sins, nonetheless, Adam has a responsibility that extends beyond his own personal sins, include hers as well. He will answer in a unique way. For what happens in the garden that day, he's not going to be entirely enthusiastic about that. But it's going to be inescapable. He'll, help, he'll be held responsible for what happens that day in the garden. So these three things are our unpacking what the text tells us in its context about Adam, his participation, his delinquency, his responsibility. Let's turn the corner now for the rest of our time. Let's look at the things we can learn how is this edifying for us to reflect on Adam and his eating the forbidden fruit? I'll work backwards through some of the things that I've said. Lesson number one. With the privilege of leadership comes the price of responsibility. That's lesson number one. With the privilege of leadership comes the price of responsibility. Wherever you think Adam was and when in the account of Genesis 3, you know his role is quite minimal. The spotlight's on Eve's eating, but as we've seen, Adam is held responsible. Now, let me be clear. I recognize the uniqueness of Adam's leadership. His leadership is not just over his wife, it is leadership that is over all of mankind in their sin. I recognize the uniqueness of his headship, but there's a principle that continues in leadership as God has ordained it, particularly within the church and the home. I'm speaking first to the men of resurrection now. For all the differences between you and your first father, here's where the similarity exists. Your leadership brings responsibility, not just for yourself, 
but responsibility for those you lead. Oh, this is something that missed or evaded by many men. Prefer not to think about this. Prefer to have the categories uh, a little more neat and tidy. I have things that I do wrong. I'm responsible for that. The members of my household, for example, have things they do wrong. They're responsible for that. Well, there are a lot of things, my fellow brothers, my fellow leaders of your families. There are a lot of things that happen in your home that are not your fault in the sense that you didn't do them. They're not your sins. You're not the only sinner in your house. But you bear responsibility nonetheless. You have the privilege of leading your home. You ha- it comes with the price of being responsible in answering to the Lord in a unique way for what happens in your home. Why Paul, the apostle, in his letters in 1 Timothy and in Titus, can speak of men who are eligible for leadership in the church as men who have wives that are dignified and sober-minded and children who are submissive and faithful. And you say, wait a minute, their wives are their own free moral agents, their children are their own free moral agents, to be sure. Paul says those men are responsible. Young men, uh, you hear this a lot, take responsibility for your actions. Young men, you hear that a lot, right? <laughs> there's a lot, there's no shortage of people that want you to take responsibility for your own actions. Well, do that, and then look beyond that to the reality that you're heading, young men, you're heading towards a role where you'll be needing to take responsibility not just for your own actions, the actions of others, and your care and oversight and spiritual headship. You'll be especially and uniquely responsible for that dating relationship, that it stays on the rails of righteousness. Eventually, you'll be responsible for the things happening in your home, young men, even though your wife is the one who's primarily influencing the day-to-day operations of the home, you'll be responsible. She may also be the one more invested in the education of your children than you are, but you, again, will be responsible. You'll be responsible for the ministry that your family has in the church, in your community, even though you can't do it alone, to be sure. And if it's not done, it's not merely your sin. I realize it all sounds rather weighty. It might make some of us men just say, yeah, I don't think I want to be leader. Ah. Here's what the lesson is from Adam. You'll still be held responsible even if you don't want to be a leader. You can't escape responsibility that comes from God through his word. Adam is guilty in his own right. But the rest of the Bible will virtually ignore Eve's role in the whole thing. Because Adam is the leader. That's the price of being a leader. The price of responsibility. That's lesson number one. Lesson number two this morning is that 
Well, I'll say it this way. Satan is happy to ensnare his victims by means of their friends and family. So wives, I scarcely need point out that Eve is not exactly living up to her calling to be Adam's helper in verse 6. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. Someone could be excused for thinking with helpers like that, who needs enemies? May well have been that Eve was still deceived and brought to her husband what in her mind was something good for him. It makes me think of the word in Proverbs 31 of the wife who does for her husband good and not harm. It's so interesting that it says that. Good and not harm all the days of her life because it can go both ways. Wives can do their husbands good or evil. I actually want to make a point that goes far beyond wives. We're all capable of having the role of Eve in another person's life. Being unwitting, perhaps, unwilling, perhaps, deputies of Satan. Now, just consider with me for a moment. I cited a moment ago our Lord's rebuke of Peter. And you remember the context of that? Peter has said, I'm confident Peter had, under a certain deception, under a certain uh, misconception, uh, Christ's glory and well-being at stake in his own mind. Jesus has been talking about his sufferings and his death that are coming. And Peter has taken it upon himself to say, far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. Why does Jesus speaking to him just in that moment say, get behind me, Satan? I think Satan, rather, I think Jesus is speaking to the Satan whose temptation lies behind Peter's words. Peter's not intending to do God any harm. Perhaps Eve was neither seeking to harm to her husband. But Satan was pleased well enough. In fact, brothers and sisters, it really should be our assumption that this has been Satan's plan from the beginning. He knows who he has to subdue in order to bring the whole human race into its fall. He's been going after Adam all along. He's done it through his closest companion. He's not his ultimate target. He's going to tempt the head of the human race through his family. This is another sobering reminder to us in all of our various relations, friends, families, the first instance of God's people being evil influences on each other. Ask yourself after an evening with friends, was I and Eve to anyone there last night? 
way that I spoke, the way that I joked, the way that I grumbled and complained, the way I spoke with cynicism and the like. Was I the means of bringing anyone else into temptation, nudge them a, a step further away from Christ, Eating forbidden fruit is bad. Sharing it is even worse, you might say. We are being introduced here in the beginning of Genesis to the fact that sin is so very shameful. Two sobering lessons, and I have a third from a sobering text. Third lesson I alluded to a moment ago is that sin in the heart makes us want what God has forbidden simply because it's forbidden. So we seem to have this contrast. Eve, we're told why she wants the fruit. It's, it's beautiful. It's appetizing. And it has certain effects Adam wants the fruit. Well, we're not told why. We know that he's not deceived, but that leaves us with Adam simply wanting the fruit. Last week, our lessons were about the danger of being deceived. That was Eve's fate. The warning now is about the perversity of our own hearts in their sinfulness to want what is forbidden simply because it's forbidden. That's the best we can do in coming up with why. Adam ate. You know this about your own heart, don't you? It doesn't need a reason to disobey. Other than that God said not to. Paul puts it this way in Romans 7. I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said you shall not covet. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. Adam, you lack for nothing good except what God had said not to eat. That's where his desires landed. (laughs) Parents, you can see this in your young children. The one thing of all absorbing interest in their life. But you said don't touch about it. Your children are just wearing on their faces and in their eyes the nature of all of our hearts insofar there is sin in them. That expression in Proverbs 9 is relevant. The wise man says, stolen water is sweet. Bread eaten in secret is pleasant. Water is water, right? Bread is bread. No, that's the point. There's something especially sweet about water that you weren't supposed to 
take from your neighbor's well. Something especially appetizing about bread that you have to eat secretly because you stole it. In the context, the wise man is talking about sexual immorality versus what God has given, which is sexual intimacy in marriage. Talking about how another man's wife and the thought of love with her is sweet to the sinner precisely because it's forbidden. Principle applies to all things forbidden. That's when sin is at its, what shall I call it, simplest and its most heinousness. I want it precisely because God doesn't want me to have it. So we're to look for this in our own hearts, watching our first father. He has given us his nature. And it will turn out for us as it turned out for him. The wise man goes on to say, bread gained by deceit is sweet to a man. But afterward his mouth can be full of gravel. Sin in our hearts makes us want what God has forbidden. Only because it's forbidden. So what Milton puts before us poetically of Adam in utter horror at what his wife has done, we're actually standing back with horror at what he has done. He is the one who is our head. Explains, though, doesn't it? So much about our world. So much about ourselves. It's good and wholesome for us to look closely at Adam's fall. Here's how I want to close, though. Not with the horror. Oh, it's, it's painful to talk about forbidden fruit. How should we go from this place and this passage not fixated on forbidden fruit? <laughs> not that. But turning to freely given fruit. I'll submit that to you. That's what Psalm 103 reminds us of as we began this whole worship hour. He crowns you with steadfast love and mercy. He satisfies you with good so your youth is renewed like the eagles. It reminds us that Adam had been lavishly blessed by the God who forbade one thing. And so we turn from forbidden fruit in our lives. We turn from forbidden fruit not to simply do without Turn from forbidden fruit, brothers and sisters, to permitted fruit. <laughs> That's what we're especially turning to on a day like today. That's what we're especially able to give ourselves to on a day set apart to enjoy God and his redemption and his people. God has blessed us in Christ. We begin our worship this evening.
And he's blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Permitted fruit, freely given fruit. He invites us to turn from that which is forbidden to that which he's given, ultimately to his own son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's go to him now in prayer. Our Father, we see our hearts there in Genesis 3. And Eve, and even in Adam, we see it in the susceptibility to believe a lie and to think something good that ultimately brings death far, far Worse, we see in our own hearts the desire to have something just because it's been forbidden, to knowingly turn to that which we know brings death. We see ourselves in this, and it makes us all the more thankful that you have come to clear our eyes with the truth of your word and the gospel, Lord Jesus, to take us out of the deception of the serpent and to change our hearts, to give us new desires, to have a hatred for that which you've forbidden. Lord, this work that you've begun, continue it in us, we pray. And on this day, in a special way, we ask that you will make all the more glorious in our eyes, that which you've freely given to us in Christ and all with Christ on this your day. Hear our prayer and our thanks in it all. In Jesus' name, amen.